when we interview with folks out of non-science, we worry more about the scientists who are watching us. You know, if people want to hear the nitty-gritty, they'll ask. And you're not lying if you start in strong, big picture, strong statements that are difficult to push back on unless you have some other robust data to against. And then as, as the story develops and if it gets richer and more intimate, then you can start to talk about gaps and areas of concern. But don't think about them as gaps and areas of concern. Think about those as opportunities to explore more. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. The world needs evidence-based public policy now more than ever. Making the right decisions should not be partisan politics. Please help spread the rational view by going to patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Together, we can make a better future. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, I'm returning to a core topic of The Rational View, the communication of science. This is why I made this podcast, to to combat anti-science thinking and to bring rational thought into the public discussion. My guest today has experience communicating science to the public during environmental crises and has shared his experience and advice for other scientists in a newly published book. What are the mistakes that scientists make in outreach and how can we do a better job without endangering our careers? If you like what you're hearing, I would love you to press like on your podcast app and show the love. Come join us on our Facebook group, The Rational View, and we can have some more in-depth discussions about this and hear your thoughts. I'd love to chat with you. Christopher Reddy is a leader in the study of marine pollution and the development of environmentally friendly industrial chemicals. A senior scientist in the Department of Marine Chemistry and Geochemistry at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute and faculty member of the MIT-WHOI Joint Program on Oceanography. Reddy has led numerous field operations along coastlines, in the open ocean, and at the bottom of the sea to conduct transformative research that crosses disciplines and guides policy decisions worldwide. As an author, Dr. Reddy has recently published Science Communication in a Crisis. Dr. Reddy, welcome to The Rational View. Oh, thanks. I'm really happy to be here. I appreciate the intro. I'll make my mom proud and happy. <laughs> so could you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in oceanography? I guess that was your 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 work as a in, in university. Yeah, I grew up in, in Rhode Island, you know, the smallest state in the union. Uh, I was uh, number six of seven kids. My mom wanted to be a scientist, but ended up having a lot of kids um, and her dad was, you know, would have been Doc Brown from Back to the Future. So I always had kind of the how things work um, vibe to me. Um, but I wasn't a very good student, I would say. I, I, I never really worked very hard and kind of muddled through my life. Um, and eventually I got a bachelor's degree in chemistry and had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And then on a whim, my boss goes, you know, you should go down the street and go to graduate school. And this guy is really great. Um, who studies the oceanography. He's a chemical oceanographer, but I think you guys would work. And um, 
on my lunch break, I was working analyzing drinking water, you know, for pollution pollutants. I went and saw this guy, Jim Quinn. Guy transformed my life, gave me meaning, you know, told me I was good. Um, and uh, there it was. Wow. Wow. That's pretty good. So you had a good supervisor who kind of led you into the work and and then you got involved in in um oil i guess or or petrochemicals i would say let me correct you despite the fact that i wasn't a very good student i think my whole life and i've been through the you know public school systems from kindergarten to phd i can name you about seven science teachers who always looked out and thought better of me than i thought of myself um and i consider myself really lucky because of that for my PhD, just at that time, there was a lot of interest in using recycled automobile tires as uh, add them as modifier to roads. Um, there was a lot of interest about whether or not it was better for the environment. Was it a better product? And so for about two thirds of my PhD, uh, I worked with a civil engineer and graduate student. Um, and he simulated rainfall and other type of weathering on a, on a road that he actually made. And then I looked at the runoff of the water that, you know, washes off a road. And, and I looked at the chemicals and I compared what chemicals were coming off a regular road and then what was coming off um, these tires, tire, you know, embedded roads. And I, that was about half of my PhD. Oh, very interesting. So you've had, a, I would say, a long and distinguished career. Uh, and you've recently published a new book called Science Communication in a Crisis. So... What is your background, your experience in outreach and, and science communication that led you to, to this book? A lot of mistakes and a lot of oil spills. Um, and I think I have a little bit of ambulance chase around me, uh, collectively. So uh, I had, for the funding kind of ran out on my PhD thesis to study the roads. Ended up writing one paper about it, but just by chance, there was an oil spill not too far where I was going to graduate school in Rhode Island. Did some work on it, ended up making it part of my thesis, kind of got interested in a lot of the dynamics of an oil spill. And actually, the kind of the community aspect, um, I kind of liked the idea that what I was working on was kind of um, rolling out in real time. Um, so that's where I kind of got interested in it. Finished my PhD. I did a postdoc at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, where I've been since then. And I just started studying oil spills, whether or not they were the remains of old ones that you could go sniff them out or whether or not they were, um, you know, one that was real time. I mean, I'm completely unofficial. I mean, I'm not in the Coast Guard, but to me, an oil spill is just an opportunity to see how nature responds to an uninvited guest. The point is, though, that when an oil spill happens, there's a lot of other parties who are interested in like it or not. Or actually, I think it's a good thing. Um, people want to know what you know. And so just by nature of studying things that are in the news or affect your everyday life and whether or not you're going to go to the beach or whether or not you still have a job at the fishing factory, um, you end up communicating science. Right. So you, you have been uh, interviewed by the press. You've given uh, press conferences. You've, I think you've even addressed Congress. Is that correct? Uh, five times. Five times. Congress. And this is all to do with oil spills? Yeah. Yeah. And then some state and local and things like that. And um, maybe one on plastic at a state level. And uh, even in my local town, I talked about pesticides. So, but yeah. Okay. That's very cool. So you, 
your book uh, is, is, is showing lessons learned. So to, to learn lessons, you have to fail. Uh, and you provide some examples of poor science communication in your book. Could you share an anecdote or two on, on, on bad communication? <laughs> you know, I think the, the one that always kind of bothers me was I was supposed to be on Good Morning America on a Monday morning. And on Sunday night, they wanted to come tape me in my lab. It was in the heat of the Deepwater Horizon uh, oil spill disaster, which was in 2010 in April. And this was now July or August. And uh, I was tired. You know, I was exhausted. I was working every day. I had probably done 15 trips down to the Gulf. It was all out. And uh, I mean, I had a lot of media training. I had a lot of media experiences. And I, um, I was just tired. And I was cranky. And, the, you know, these great video folks come into my lab. And, you know, even for a couple minute spot, you know, they're there for two hours, you know, and you're standing there and you're uncomfortable. And these guys are working really hard. And, um, you know, ultimately the interviewer really wanted me to say something. And he was kind of baiting me, I would say, to give some type of end of the world. And I didn't really want to go there. And I just kept pushing back. I didn't feed him. I didn't nourish him. I didn't have a successful outcome. And eventually, I, you know, the guy was handsome. You know, it looked like he spent some time, you know, working on his hair. hair. And I eventually said, you know, um, if you don't tell me how to do science, you know, I'm not going to tell you how to blow dry your hair. And that was it. You know, they left. And, you know, it was bad for me. It was bad for my institution. It was bad for science. And, you know, in theory, Good Morning America is such a huge platform. You know, if I could have done a better job, you know, I would have might have given some information that had clarity and comfort so those folks were most deeply affected. So that's a pretty big failure considering the platform and the reach of Good Morning America and the insultingness. You know, I mean, it was kind of jerky. Yeah. But so what did you learn from that? The, the journalist was pushing you to to give, you know, uh, a devastating critique of, of the oil spill. Yeah. And, you, and that scientifically, you weren't prepared to do that. So you, you don't yeah. want to obviously compromise your, your scientific integrity how do you how should you have responded in that situation what what could you have done well in a more global sense i should have just said no i mean i was not in a good place i was super tired i was at the beach with my wife i was complaining the whole time that i didn't want to go do this i knew it was only a couple minutes bob but i knew that was a couple hours i knew we had a big week and, you know, a lot of times, you know, we, you know, as scientists and just like anybody else, we're excited when somebody wants to hear from you, right? Yeah. It's a huge ego mm-hmm. boost. And, you know, there's a competition aspect. I wanted to be out there where one of my other um, counterparts wasn't going to be on Good Morning America. And I also thought that I was better than them. So, you know, you got competition, you got ego, you got tired, you got cranky. The end result was I should have just said no. Um, okay. After that, the um, before if I said yes and I was in a good place, I should have went and watched what this guy was up to, what his interests were, what his angle was, his interview style. I didn't do my homework. You know, I listened to you beforehand. I checked you out. You know, I understood all the, you know how you work. I didn't do that, so I walked in cold. I didn't know this guy's angle. I didn't know his audience. It was cranky. It was all that, and you know, I should have been able. To, you know what they say in communicating, I should have been able to block and bridge. I should have been able to be nimble. I should have been able to turn that conversation around. But for whatever reason, I just was just fighting this guy. No, I'm not going to say this. I'm not going to say this. No, that's not true. 
And, um, you know, no, not that's true. And I'm not going to say that does not go along when, you know, in, in a major media platform. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to say it would have been easy. Either. Sure. I mean, I don't think that would have been easier, uh, an easy interview at all. But I think I could have done better than that. Um, and that's. It's tough to say no, though, in a situation like that. I could, I could just imagine, you know, a huge platform like that. You want to get the word out there. You want to represent for the science. I mean, that would be almost impossible for me to say no as well. I I can understand exactly what you're saying, and that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, in some respects, I've had, you know, I've given a lot of interviews. Even by then, I've been on TV and all these things. But I don't think, and you know, I have to go back and check. I don't think I ever would have had as big of an audience. Um, it's Good Morning America. Yeah. And I think a really widespread audience, you know, I mean, you know, the morning shows when we were kids, that was the end all be all. I mean, it's not as big as it is now, but still, I had a great audience. Mm. And I blew it. You mentioned in your book uh, that your your supervisor advised you not to talk to the press regarding that oil spill near your university. Yeah. And you you agreed with that, like you weren't ready to talk to the press. How do we have the wisdom to say no? How, what what can scientists? How will how do scientists have ego? I mean, this is something that happens. <laughs> yeah. You're trying to make uh, a great discovery and get a Nobel Prize or whatever you're trying to do. How do what wisdom can you impart to share with someone how to know whether to take on a, an interview opportunity? I think the most importantly is to go back and look at the risk versus the reward. You know, I mean, I think, you know, we get excited, but we really have to say, if you have a successful outcome, you know, where does that put you? But on the flip side, if that is not a successful outcome, where does it put you? And, you know, sadly, and a lot of times in computer game science and in academia, you know, one small mistake is not crossed off very quickly. Um, you know, going back to the, that example of my PhD advisors telling me not to uh, talk to the media, uh, the risk was large because he was my advisor. <laughs> so, and the reward was none because if I'd done it, you know, I mean, you know, he was very old school. He was a wonderful, lovely guy, Jim Quinn. I cannot thank him enough, but he was old school enough that if I had gone on the radio or TV the day after he left, he probably would have come back home. I mean, he was skiing up in Vermont. Um, if he had heard, I mean, I can't even imagine the world of trouble I would have gotten on if I had done what he categorically said, no, and I could tell that that wasn't true. I also had known him for several years. So I knew his style. He was a very careful, thoughtful guy and and also very controlled. And, you know, when you go on the media, you have to have an understanding that you cannot control it. And so, um, you know, there it is. After that, you know, you have to look at yourself and what your value system is in personally. Um, about what the risk versus the reward is. And that's just it. And, you know, my advice to junior scientists and other people is talk to people who actually help you decide what risk versus reward is. So if you have a PhD advisor, you should talk to them. If you have a department chair, you should talk to friends, you know, uh, and game this out. You know, the sad part about it is you don't have a lot of time if the media is knocking on your door. But if you don't have time and you're not ready, don't do it. Yeah, the risks are not always obvious to someone who's not experienced. Um, I think you, you mentioned something like being Saganized. Uh, yeah. You know, can you tell us what that means? What is, what is being Saganized? 
Well, I mean, you know, go back to Carl Sagan, who's arguably one of the most influential scientists of the last century um, on so many platforms. But I mean, at the end of the day, Carl was, you know, Carl, I've never met him, uh, was, you know, way ahead of his game. And as you know, when you're ahead of the pack and you think outside the box and, and yet you're really smart, that can scare a lot of people and it makes folks nervous. And I think in Carl's case, um, you know, he was so way ahead of the curve. It was made other people uncomfortable. I think he was really smart. Um, but you know, in a more global case, you know, if you go against the norm and there is a norm that being popular and the news and TV is, you know, not valued that much, then, you know, that's how you can get Saganized. Um, you know, the upside is Carl didn't make many mistakes, you know, he didn't, I mean, um, to the point where he was really, really good. Um, and so that was his upside is as he, you know, he also was honed and he was in fantastic science communicating shape. I mean, uh, you know, before he goes on Johnny Carson, he's done hundreds of interviews, right? He is tangoed with everybody from, you know, uh, school teachers all the way up to NASA administrators. Um, so he was in great fighting shape when he was ready to rock and roll. And I think that's part of the sense of awareness and the risk versus the reward is, am I ready? Am I in, have a level of science communication fitness um, to be sure? Sagan he, uh, actually suffered, his career suffered, you you claim, because of his, his communication. What, what actually happened to him? He didn't get tenure. He didn't get tenure at Harvard. He made people nervous, you know. The, um, so the tenure committee did not approve him to become a tenured professor. Yeah, no, he actually got a, a pretty damning letter. Um, so when you you know you go out for tenure, you know they go out for letters both internally, you know, the own faculty at your university, and then outside at a place like Harvard, you know, the letters that are evaluating you are Nobel Prize winners and other extremely distinguished people, and you know. Um, one of his letter writers who didn't support his tenure was Harold Gure. He was one of the most influential geochemists of the last century, and even now. And, you know, Yuri didn't write a very strong letter of support. But years later, and again, Sagan didn't know who his letter writers were. Uh, years later, Yuri went up to Sagan and said, you know, I made a mistake. Wow. Yeah, the, the, the atmosphere has always been very against outreach. And I know... You know, as scientists, communication isn't one of our fortes. We didn't go into scientists because we're good communicators. We went into scientists because we don't like people and don't want to talk to them. <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't communication and outreach wasn't taught in, in science school. It was barely mentioned and, and mainly as a slightly unsavory thing that some ex-scientists do, uh, you know, when they don't get a professorship. Uh, why are we so notoriously bad at communicating? What mistakes do we make? Ooh. Well, I mean, there are efforts to get science communication into the curriculum and, you know, and it's more, I think, more appreciated and recognized when you're, you're at a faculty level. Um, but, you know, the bigger challenge is, is that, uh, you know, there is no currency. You know, you don't get so many peer review points for giving a good interview or good science communication. It, you know, it's, it's just not on, there's a lot of word, a lot of, you know, a lot of talk, but at the end of the day, it's not incorporated into, I believe, the currency and the value system of how we reward in academia. Um, but on a flip side, I mean, on a bigger, bigger picture, 
I think that scientists um, think science communication is not using the metric system and, you know, not using jargon and things like that. These kind of things that you learn in a couple hour your workshop, which are fine. But I would start off thinking this is more of an anthropology class, you know, and thinking about who are you going to talk to? What is their value system? What does it matter to them? What kind of time scales are they interested in? And then start to train them about, you know, how to give a, you know, a two minute response or, you know, we go in and teach folks or give them the, I think the bare minimum, which is fine. You got to start someplace, but I would start figuring out like, okay, if somebody's going to talk to you, you know, how would you talk to this type of person versus this person? And, you know, ultimately you gotta, you gotta understand who you're working with because it's not a binary pool of scientists and non-scientists. Yeah, no, that's very important advice. And I think a lot of scientists aren't aren't even remotely aware of the aspects of communication that they need to, to say, win a debate, for example. I've seen, you know, scientists feel that they are experts in their field so that they can go out and talk to anybody about it at any time. And I've seen horrible failures, for example, in the in the evolution creation debate, you know, it seems like a slam dunk that, you know, there's absolutely no science in favor of creationism and, and, you know, all of the weight of hundreds of years of geo geological and biological evidence in favor of the other, any scientist feels they should be able to go and win a debate, but you're, when you go to a debate, you're talking about a professional communicator, someone who's made their life on, you know, being a showman and, and and trans and talking to audiences and, and connecting with audiences and scientists don't connect with audiences well. That they look stilted and they're they're you know they're gish galloped onto the back foot and they just don't understand this. They'll just go and accept um, an interview and they actually that hurts the case for science, doesn't it? When, when people oh, go and do that. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I think the bigger challenge when I watch those because I, I tend to agree that the evolution arguments are probably the hardest. Uh, and, you know, my take for the folks who are not up to fighting speed to do this is that they don't understand that um, that the person they're debating with ha- uh, doesn't follow the same rules and regulations, right? We, we evaluate our peers by the quality of our research and, and how robust we evaluate and you know, we appreciate that papers published in science and nature are, are, you know, and papers that have been cited a thousand times have a lot of value, right? But if you're debating somebody who doesn't really care whether or not you've published a paper of science or nature, or, you know, the Journal of Venus, it doesn't matter to them, you know, and that's the trick is if you're going to go and debate with somebody, you better understand what their value system is and, and what they appreciate. And, and, uh, and then you have a little bit better chance um, but I think a lot of those folks, I would just wouldn't do it. I mean, I, I don't think you can win. Or win, win's not the right word, forgive me. But I mean, I don't think you can have a successful outcome if you're not in fighting shape, you don't understand who you're going against, and you don't understand who the audience is and how they're keeping score. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the way that scientists communicate amongst ourselves, uh, you know, you're taught to put forward all of the potential objections to your argument, to do clearly write out the caveats and why you might be wrong. And this is not something your opponents are going to do in a, in a public debate, right? They, they, they're not going to play by the, the Earl of Queensbury rules here. <laughs> and it just yeah. makes scientists look very, 
unsure of themselves. You know, would would you suggest that a scientist entering a debate change how they provide information and not, you know, like sound more certain? Or how do you get around this this um, propensity to uh, put forward all the negatives to your argument in a in a short soundbite type environment? Yeah. No, I think this happens a lot because what happens is, is that we, when we interview with folks out of non-science, we worry more about the scientists who are watching us, right? And we're worrying about the fact that if we use an overgeneralized statement, which is pretty reasonable and pretty well, you know, rooted in science, but we don't add that caveat, you know, that, oh, but it's uncertain a little, um, then our peers are going to think less of us. Yes. Um, but so, you know, we worry more about ourselves when we get these debates. And that's why, you know, we're, you know, going there, well, you know, you know, we're uncertain about this, we're uncertain about this. And, you know, but at the end of the day, a lot of these statements, you know, if people want to hear the nitty gritty, they'll ask. Um, and you're not lying if you start in strong, big picture, strong statements that are difficult to push back on unless you have some other robust data to against. And then as, as the story and develops and if it gets richer and more intimate, then you can start to talk about gaps and areas of concern. But don't think about them as gaps and areas of concern. Think about those as opportunities to explore more and have a richer, you know, more deeper understanding of what the case be. Yeah, I mean, you have to understand the colloquial understanding of our words. And, uh, you know, people have said that, you know, there aren't facts in science. You know, you're never sure. But, you know, other people have said, you know, a fact is something that has been so heavily supported by the evidence that it would be perverse to withhold provisional assent. Uh, you know, and that's a fact, right? This is the, the more colloquial Way. So you have to, as a scientist, I think, have your arguments ready for when you reach these moral dilemmas in, in your discussions and be ready with, with quick um, justifications that, that stand up well on both sides of the argument. In practice, I often, a lot. Yeah. A lot. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. So you, you have, uh, you said five times you've talked to Congress that... Tell me about your 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 experience uh, testifying in front of Congress and how much preparation you put into that. Well, you know, you're excited that somebody's calling you, right? I mean, you you find out one way or the other that a staff is, wants you to speak, and it is a big deal. It's a big rush, and it's fine to be excited, right? <laughs> but for the most part, you know, um, you know, being on camera in front of the the table with your you know your faux glasses and and, and you know, your best suit, you know, that's a little bit of pageantry. You know, at the end of the day, for the most part, your written statement, which you add, you know, which is then in the record that is not, you know, if, there, if this is a really important point, more often than not, your statement, you know, adds much more credibility. It's longer in there. But still, at the end of the day, you know, you got three or four people sitting next to you. You got three or four minutes to talk. And, you know, you're in a tough spot because the culture and the rules and the way in which Congress works is, you know, it is not a fair fight. I mean, they are sitting up higher than you. They've got the microphone. They can cut the microphone off, right? Um, you can't push back that hard. So, you know, you know, testifying in Congress, I would tell folks to, you know, get your statement really strong and then practice and, you know, just be willing to understand that you're not going to win that well. 
I don't think you will. I mean, you can make a pretty good case, but it's tough um, to be in Congress because you know you're you're their house guest. So, were, were how did you feel you did? Were your were your presentations successful? Did you did you lay down the law? <laughs> I don't think I failed. I don't think I did something bad, right? So I think, you know, I think that my five statements that I wrote, I think were really strong. In fact, I went back and revisited one because I was looking for some text or something I wrote. So I feel really proud. I worked really hard on those. I would say that uh, the interviews, uh, the, you know, the, the presentation, it's never great, you know, because, you know, you don't have the, you know, you're, you know, you're sitting at a desk and the microphone's at the wrong spot, you know, so... Um, you know, I guess the, you know, my four minutes or five minutes was fine. And I don't think I ever got myself into conflict or, um, you know, did anything bad for science. And at least, you know, I spoke up for science. I do believe, and I have to go back, I think I got into a little bit of a pushback on Marco Rubio, a senator from Florida, but it wasn't contentious. I was like, I don't think that's, the case, but it was, it was fine. Um, but yeah, it's tough, but it's also really gratifying and, you know, you can do a really great job, but you got to practice and you got to be really fighting shape to go up there. Interesting. Yeah. Cause I'm sure a lot of the questions are, are meant for theater and not in, in, you know, yeah. they aren't meant to be real questions and how, how you deal with that, I think is important, yeah. right? Cause they're trying yeah. to get a rise out of you to, to discredit you. I think in yeah. some cases. And those questions are there already. I mean, you know, it, you know, you, you know, I'm not a, uh, I don't know everything about how Congress works, but for the most part, you know, one, one, one side of the house or the Senate, you know, has asked you to come, you know, and uh, you know, knowing what your approach is, not necessarily to speak on their behalf. And, you know, sometimes you'll be set, you know, like, listen, you know, the Senator, you know, has a chance he or she's going to give you this, ask you this question. So in some respects, you do have a sense of um, what's going to be asked of you. And, uh, and in theory, you should not walk into many interviews without having a sense of what you're going to be asked. Now that, that's, that's very, very useful for advice for the, for the very small percentage of us that get to testify in front of Congress. <laughs> but you can do it in your local town. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, there are areas to insert yourself in that level. Uh, but it's hard to get even four minutes this day and age. You know, you go to these town council meetings and, you know, you're trying to get your word in edgewise in 30 seconds and it's hard. There's a lot of pageantry and there's a lot of ego. So scientists do best when we have time and an interested audience. Uh, you know, so you have 30 minutes or a presentation and things like that. And, you know, that's somebody's willing to give you the time. then I think you can really do well and, and, and we can work on our strengths. Do you think scientists should have a mandate to do outreach uh, on their work? I think that is very tricky, um, in part because we don't have a metric yet. There is no currency. There is no, you get a quarter for being on, on, your, on your podcast. You get a nickel for being here. Uh, you get $100 if you're on Good Morning America. We don't have that metric system, and I don't think we have an accepted metric system, uh, that kind of system across all of academia. And so, you know, there is well, you know, people will push back on some of these metrics that, you know, that scientists have now, H factors. And, you know, we don't have as many statistics as American baseball, but there's enough statistics that you can get a sense of where a scientist is in their career. 
Um, but there is no set rules and regulations about science communication. So there isn't, I don't see, you know, the overarching value, but I would argue that all that is related to your career. And I think personally that communicating science is about yourself. It's about, it's about, it's about a journey about learning about yourself and, and I think, for the most part, feeling better about yourself that you were able to inform somebody. Um, and I can tell you, many interviews I've had have gone back into my lap. So I think it's also made me a better scientist. But if you start to think about communicating science to get a promotion, I don't think it's mature yet. But communicating science to, you know, to enrich yourself, to, uh, to uh, maybe expand what you know and, and uh, you know, revitalize yourself and all these things that are not necessarily directly to your career. Yeah, I would encourage folks to do it in their own comfort zone. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's something that has in the past been stigmatized and as a science career. And it's always been very difficult for the risks that you, you lay out to the career. But I think as a field, it's been very detrimental to the field to have not taken this on sooner. And I think it's it's allowed anti-science sentiment to, to rise and it's resulted in poor public policy decisions. And this is one reason I started this podcast was, you know, I think we need a rational view in public policy and we need to change the discussion and challenge anti-science viewpoints uh, at, at high levels. So, you know, and I've, you know, I've seen how really good science communicators get the message across. Carl Sagan, yeah, amazing job. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, also, you know, they're so quick on their feet. They they have relatively good responses, but they get so much uh, vitriol from, from fellow scientists. You know, they're not real scientists now that they're talking to the media. It's, it's, it, I can understand the, the hesitation of someone who is looking for an academic career to, to do this. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I, you know, I worry about scientists who are trying to make a name in academia, especially early on, uh, trying to communicate science when it's just not appreciated in terms of their impact. But I do think as you go along your career trajectory, where you're more willing um, to accept more risk or, you know, limit the risk and recognize the reward, then I do, you know, I would encourage, and I do it often, you know, I'll say, you know, you should talk to this person or, you know, it doesn't even have to be, you know, science communication, people think it's supposed to be on TV or, or, or something else. You know, it could be, you know, a reporter calls me and wants to ask me about, you know, river, river flow. And I'm like, listen, I, I don't know anything about river flow, but I know the guy. Uh, and let me email this person and I'll talk to him and say, hey, listen, this guy's just going on background. He just needs it. You know, this is a good reporter. I know this reporter. You should talk to this person. And, you know, that's how I think a lot of times, uh, you know, that's good science communication. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to have your name in print. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, okay, that, that's that's true, yeah. Um, another thing that I notice in the public debate these days is that um, there's loss of trust, I think, in institutions and in scientists in general. And, you know, maybe it's because of bad communication skills, I often lay a bunch of the blame of science illiteracy on journalists, though, for, you know, feeling the need to give equal time to extreme minority opinions. Um, I don't know how to 
counter that? Can can just improved science communication solve this problem, or are there other things behind this that we need to deal with? Yeah, I mean, I think we can make. I think there's there's space for you know improvement, but I mean, at the end of the day, one of the biggest challenges is that science moves slow, and you know. Uh, you know, when we were growing up, you know, it was a big deal when we had one of those, you know, cordless phones with a big antenna, you know, that had spread out three feet or, you know, a, a meter. And then, you know, so incrementally for us, you know, for folks about our age, you know, phones have changed dramatically. So everything's moving really fast and things move fast and sound bites are shorter and people only click on the, you know, on a website for a couple seconds and science is slow. It's fine that it's slow. We're comfortable with I like slow, right? Nobody else wants slow. You know, it's like American baseball. You know, uh, I, I always think about science as like American baseball, really slow, 162 games, all these rules, all these regulations. It's kind of hard to follow. And I think most of the public wants to watch a soccer match or a hockey match. Boom, get, you know, the strategy in there, but they, it's very clear where it's going. It's it's well-defined and something's going to happen, you know, and baseball is, you know, it's so drawn out, but that's good. You know, science movement slow is good. Incremental science is good. The problem is, is that everybody else and most of the other platforms and media want it faster and faster. So the trick is, and it's not easy, is for scientists and other folks to understand how science works. And I think a lot when we watch things playing out with COVID and other things is that that there's a, a misunderstanding about how science works. We bathe in uncertainty. If I'm certain about something, I'm not going to spend any time on it, right? I, I, I want to be in the uncertain world. I want to explore. Everybody else wants certainty. And so we have to try to understand and maybe educate folks uh, about how science works and that we actually want to celebrate, you know, the slowness and think of it as kind of a, our safety net for everything that moves so fast. Yeah, it, it's, and that's maybe a, a little bit the fault of, of Hollywood, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, when, when you see the, the scientists come on and they, you know, and there's a, there's a, a pandemic and, oh, we've got the virus now is, you know, Immediately, you know, one guy in his lab suddenly makes the concoction and, and it's just a problem of distributing it. But no, this isn't how it works. It takes years to, to do the sort of work that these people do in a day in their lab on, on in the movies. So people have a lot of wrong impressions about the, the speed. And I know this this came out in the COVID and communicating you know, as we learn more about how the virus spreads, you know, you know, we need to sanitize all the surfaces. Okay, well that's you know, that's a precaution. We don't know yet how this virus spreads. Okay, it's through the air now. Oh, well, you didn't say that at first. What's wrong? Why are you lying to us? And that that promoted distrust rather than, in me, it promoted trust because I can see transparently the science progressing from uncertainty to increased evidence. And much of the populace held this against science. Like science is bad. You guys are telling us wear masks and don't wear masks and sanitize surfaces. And now that's not important. Like you guys don't know what you're talking about. Uh, I, I don't know how to. I I totally agree. I mean, I had a backseat. I, I basically watched the pandemic and it was the inspiration for finally me, you know, licking the stamp on this book is uh, I think all these scientists, all these engineers, these responders, all these folks uh, during the during the pandemic did are just heroes. 
And I don't think folks have any idea uh, what went down. And then, you know, we always talk about in the U.S., at least the Manhattan Project. And we made a bomb in a couple of years. And, you know, that was our momentous time. And, you know, the, the greatest generation, uh, there was a pretty impressive scientific healthcare uh, generation right when we went down during COVID. And I don't think folks have any idea how impressive science, basic science and applied science and engineering and healthcare and medicine just delivered. Yeah. Yeah. No, it saved millions of lives getting that, yeah. getting that vaccine yeah. out. I and mean, it was, it was an amazing effort to, to do that so quickly. Um, and, and people, and it, it, it increased anti-science sentiment in the end. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's hard to wrap around that. Like I have a hard time thinking that some of my peers who have had death threats for other type of research, it is hard for me to wrap around that, you know, but I think we want to go and not, you know, dismiss these folks. I mean, obviously we don't want to support violence, but I do think we want to make a closer look and say, why are these people so mad? They want to put a death threat on the internet, which is, you know, not good, <laughs> you know, impossibly get you arrested. Right. So what is making these folks so angry? And, you know, I don't know anything about political science or anything like that. Um, but it's hard to watch this all play out, to see these folks, you know, who are trying so hard um, get death threats. And, and it's hard. You know, it's, it's hard to watch these people who dedicated their lives. And I, I truly believe um, because I had my own troubles working the Deepwater Horizon, um, that, you know, these folks are going to feel some serious burnout. Um, and I don't know where it is. I don't know where the data is. But, you know, we have to be on the lookout that we had a tremendous amount of firepower into all these folks. And um, hopefully that they're going to be okay um, because they burned hot for three years. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. It's nice that we we're starting to see um, the decrease, the, the tailing curve of this, of this. And, you know, thanks mainly to those heroic efforts of, of the scientists that, that did work to get these vaccines out. Yeah. Healthcare. I mean, I mean, I you know, think about oh these emergency First room responders, people, you know, I mean, frontline healthcare. And you know what, I will tell you that at least in my town, um, the teachers from my kids' schools and the school system who got our kids back in, which, you know, these kids stayed out of school any longer. I mean, you know, it have been devastating for all around. And my school system found a way to get these kids back in, and I think they're heroes too. Um, you know, there's a lot of – I think we need to think a little less about the negative and think about the positive and, and uh, celebrate some really fantastic um, – you know, victories that we had during COVID. I mean, you know, we don't want to say it was bad, but I think we need to look closely about the good things mm -hmm. um, in, a, mm -hmm. in an unfortunate, uh, really unfortunate, you know, event. Yeah, yeah. So we're getting towards the end here. I Maybe it would be nice if you could summarize the, you know, the take-home messages from your book. What are the the key points of advice that you would give scientists for, for communicating uh, science to the public? Are there, are there you know, is there like a, a, a take-home message that is the most, what are the most important theses of, of your book? I would say start out being kind, uh, appreciate who you're going to speak to, and try to figure out how you can make a successful outcome. 
You know, you want to walk into every communication and say, can I leave this person nourished? And if you don't feel comfortable about leaving that conversation, then you might want to reevaluate. You know, think about these interactions as not an opportunity to spiel about your newest, biggest mass spectrometer, but thinking about how every interaction is a way in which somebody feels like they learned something, that they feel better, that they know something. I have these sayings, and I, you know, I train students occasionally is you want to make dinner. So if you're giving a presentation at lunchtime and you're at dinner with your family or friends or whoever, you say, you know what? I saw this talk today. And this person said that. And so I want folks and scientists to think about everybody. There's, you know, there's no roadmap, right? Everybody has a different style. You play to your comforts. But at the end of the day, you should be aware that what you want is a successful outcome, that you want folks to feel like they learned something, or at least you gave them a new perspective. And then after that, you know, there's a lot that goes into it, but that should be your motivation. Hmm. And, and part of that you've made clear is researching who you're talking to, understanding what their angle is, what do they want? Yeah. Why are they asking you for this information? Because yeah. not all of it is, is because they they want to take part in your expertise. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's rare that somebody like you wants to talk to me, you know, as just another scientist, you know what I mean? For the most part, if somebody's calling me or wants to talk to me, you know, they're calling me for a reason. You know, there's a zillion people in this world. They're calling me because they have an answer. And my, you know, if I say yes, now my responsibility or my goal is to nourish them. And if I can't, I got to figure out a way to make them feel like they were nourished. Like, hey, listen, I don't know the answer, but here's three people you might want to think of. Oh, you know what? I saw this paper once. Let me send you this paper um, and things like that. Um, but it's not easy. Mm-hmm. But it makes you, I got to tell you, you feel good when you do a good job. And I tell scientists, do it for yourself. And I think, you know, we'll, and, and that makes scientists a little bit more human. And that'll help. Yeah. And communication isn't easy, right? This is something that I, I've learned, you know, as I'm, it's easy to communicate with other scientists. Communicating your work to the public takes a very high level of understanding and, and work to, to, you know, not to dumb it down, but to use uh, vocabulary that people understand, not to use your acronyms and your secret words that you use among scientists that people don't understand. This You want to, to put things forward in a common sense way. You want to make analogies uh, that stand up. That takes preparation and and work and i think you know if you can do that you are m- making a useful product and that's something that you know we all struggle with i think but it, the best communicators among us make it look easy yeah but from a lot of practice yeah i mean i guess obviously some folks may feel more comfortable but you know you don't have to be you don't have to be glib to be a good science communicator you know i cannot write a good tweet it takes me 2 hours to do something kind of clever and smart i just fail at twitter you know, uh, so I don't do it. You know, I do it, you know, right now I'm doing it to promote my book, but I'm just not a good tweeter. <laughs> but there's probably a lot of people <laughs> who don't do very good podcasts, but they're a heck of a tweeters or, you know, they can write a good letter to the editor or, 
you know, this, you know, you got to find and play to your strengths and your comfort zones. And then occasionally, occasionally step out your comfort zone, but only when you can understand the risk versus the reward and that it's going to be beneficial for all, or it looks like it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, I think that's a good place to end our, our discussion. That's, it's been great having you on the podcast. Thank you for sharing your, your wisdom with us and, uh, best of luck with your book. Um, thanks for coming on. I'm going to send you a, a Rational View t-shirt for, for spending your time and, and talking Sweet. to us. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Well, oh, I had a great time. Super fun. Thank you, Al. All right. Bye-bye. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page at patron.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.